we will need to look at all of our options, uh, deciding between one-time and ongoing commitments, adjusting expenditures, revisiting existing funding sources, and looking at options for increasing revenues. Well, that's Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell speaking back in February about an impending budget gap for the city of Seattle, which has been growing since he made that state of the city speech. What's the best way to patch up that gap? Well, that's the city council's job now. They're stewing over that as they begin their end of the summer break this week. They're also making some noise on gas-powered leaf blowers in the hopes of drowning out those very loud machines, banning them in the near future. And they're talking about, well, we're talking about, a neighborhood that wants to tear out a part of the major highway in Seattle. Very interesting stuff. All that and more this week on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, your coffee break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are definitely my own, and I am joined by none other than David Croman from the Seattle Times. David, always good to see you here. I'm looking out at the garden. I saw your tweet about this, and I thought I would ask, is the leave zucchini on a neighbor's porch day a real thing? Because I've got some product to unload here. <laughs> well, my friends in Vermont said that around there, everyone leaves their cars unlocked, and then yeah. people just walk around and drop zucchini into people's cars. So. Uh, I see. Ooh, wow. Point, yeah, at this point in the summer, it's you know a perfect supply and demand model. It's suddenly the supply is way outstripping oh, yeah. the demand for yeah. zucchini. Yeah, I know. It almost it sounds like a very Seattle kind of a holiday. You know, like just yeah. the right dose of passive aggression. It's like here you go. Yeah. I mean, almost a little bit of a Krampus vibe. Like if the kids are getting bad, you're going to have a zucchini on your porch. <laughs> anyway, we'll we'll see how that all goes. David, thank you as always for joining me. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to City Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast. They, of course, on the first floor of City Hall. Thanks also to our patrons. We love you. Thank you for coming on board. We welcome Anson as a new supporter of the show. He's at the $10 level, which earns him a Seattle News Views and Brews coffee mug. Got one of those 11-ounce beauties right here. It's headed your way, Anson. Thank you very much for being a patron. Our mugshot of the week from patron Zach. I put this on Twitter last week when I was on a break, but had to feature it on the show. Thanks for your support, Zach, and a beautiful blue sky mugshot there. What a summer we are having. If you listen, please do become a patron. You can get your mugshot on the show, too. That's Seattle News, Views, and Brews on Patreon. Finally, thanks to Converge Media. The video of the podcast airs on Converge Wednesday nights at 7. All right, we're going to get it going with right here, right now. Well, again, the city council is starting its annual two-week end of summer break here at the tail end of August. But one of those issues they can't put on vacation, a growing budget gap. They will have to deal with this when the mayor puts out his budget proposal four weeks from now, September 24th. And that gap has grown, folks, over the past couple of months here. At the start of the year, it was projected around $117 million, now closer to $142 million, as reported by Publicoa. And, David, the answer looks like here, at least partially, leaning on excess money collected from the jumpstart tax on big businesses. I was interested to see this, and Publicola wrote about this. Council Budget Chair Teresa Mosqueda, who has criticized this idea in the past of using those excess funds for anything else other than the specific programs that Jumpstart was intended for, affordable housing, Green New Deal, a few other programs there. Well, she's likely going to propose this idea of using Jumpstart revenue to help fill that gap. What do you make of this proposal over the excess revenue with Jumpstart? Are we going to see some political pushback over this? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, I, I have to imagine, sort of frustrating for the backers of the Jumpstart tax because this, as you mentioned, this was passed kind of exclusive, explicitly to fund affordable housing and kind of fight homelessness and things like that. But um, at the same time, the, this council in particular is 
They talk a lot about wanting to avoid an austerity budget. Um, they really don't want to be seen cutting programs. And so then you're kind of left with the choice. You know, if this gap exists, um, you can either pull money from other sources or you can start cutting. And so uh, it appears that Councilmember Mosqueda is sort of opting to go with the uh, the former and avoid the latter. Um, you know, we'll add that uh, it's interesting that, that Mayor Harrell has talked about discussing new forms of revenue, right? Uh, new kind of progressive, they as, as they've described, progressive forms of revenue. Yeah, he's uh, got a, a task force he's set up right now. Yeah, keep going. Right. This is, I mean, this has been a conversation in the city for a while. Years. Sort of the, one of the most profound frustrations of Seattle, which is uh, their desire to tax rich people and income in a way that they're basically legally not allowed to do. Uh, yeah. And so, um, you know, what, what can come of that task force? I would be curious to know. Um, I think it would probably, we'll probably see some, uh, I'll say creative ideas for expanding taxation to right. while still kind of staying within the law. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's um, certainly not where the council wanted to be when they passed the yeah. jumpstart tax, but um, yeah. it's where they are. Yeah. And just looking at this, the reason why we have a budget gap, I know we're going to go into this a little bit more in the weeks ahead, and I'm going to condense this considerably, but former Mayor Durkin last year's city council put together a budget that relied a little too much on one-time federal dollars is the way to condense this thing here to pay for a ton of priorities like investing in BIPOC communities, plus some programs for COVID relief that have been ongoing here. I just see this, David, as the real test of the one Seattle ethic that Mayor Harrell has been talking about since he was put in office and even before that. Do you see him and the council on the same page when it comes to their approach to the budget? Because I really did not see that with Mayor Durkin and the council last year. Well, we'll find out, I guess, if yeah. they're on the same page when he introduces his budget. Um, yeah. But but you're right. I do think that at, at least initially, so, so far this year, um, the, the mayor and the council have basically managed to remain friendly with one another in a mm-hmm. way that uh, Mayor Durkin and the council were not. Um, you know, it's still early. There's plenty of opportunity for that, for that to change. And, and there's yeah. no better opportunity for that to change than in budget um, when the mayor and the council are sort of forced to right. clash in a way that maybe they yeah. can sort of avoid in other legislative priorities. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fact that Councilmember Mosqueda is, is sort of endorsing the idea of using jumpstart money to fill that budget gap is, mm-hmm. is different than we've seen in, in past years. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, conversely, the fact that Mayor Harrell is talking about convening this task force is also um, kind of closer to what maybe some members of the council want to see. So yeah. you know, at first glance, yeah, I, I think they're closer together than they have been in the past. Mm-hmm. That might be that might be because of who's in office. It also might just be because of circumstances that this budget gap um, didn't exist when Mayor Durkin was in office. And yeah. um, so now they sort of have... <laughs> have a problem, a united problem that yeah. both of them have to solve in a pretty specific way. Right. Yeah. One Seattle put to the test here. Of course, there was that veto that the mayor pushed through a couple of months ago with regard to that plan over landlords and how they put out information or what have you. But other than that, I think it has been a pretty close knit relationship between the mayor and the council here. Just one last piece on this, David, in looking at these jumpstart excess revenues, looks like $71 million next year, 84 the year after that. I'm just trying to figure out what's going to be enough to fill this $142 million hole. Do they take those two years of excess and try to apply it to this year? There's going to be some, some interesting math in, in the months ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'll be, I'll be yeah. curious to see. I don't, I don't really have any guesses or nor am I smart enough to know exactly how they, <laughs> how they put that all together. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it, anyway, David, you're plenty smart. Let 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 <laughs> let the record reflect that. I just wanted to make sure I I went down that path to start because it's going to be very that. interesting to see to see where this thing goes. All right. Well, we're looking a lot of different issues here, including history coming back again. We're talking about deleted texts out there from Mayor Durkin, former Police Chief Carmen Best, Fire Chief Harold Scoggins, and it appears several other top officials involved. And now, outgoing King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg is asking for an investigation from Sheriff Patty Cole Tyndall. So last year, a whistleblower brought this to light. Ten months of texts were missing. This includes some of the times the chop was raging on. Some texts have been recovered. Many have not. David, what do you make of this idea of an investigation? And why is the prosecutor pushing for this now? Yeah, the, the now is is interesting for sure, because we are, um, what are we, two years removed from this mm. this time. I, I don't know... Um, my sense is um, basically he was giving giving space and time and latitude for a new mayor and a new city attorney to decide mm-hmm. what they wanted to do with it. Um, the, the mayor and city attorney have so far not really uh, endorsed doing this sort of investigation. They've talked um, about it, right, but nothing's been done on this. Yeah, right. And, and um, you know, the fact is sometimes there's issues like this that just don't really seem to go away. And this seems mm-hmm. to be one of it, uh, one of them that. This, this is clearly still concerning to some people in Seattle and um, certainly, you know, folks like myself, journalists who are interested in kind of getting a view into what was happening there still care and write about this. And so yeah. I think, you know, just from what I've read about what Dan Satterberg was saying, it sounds like he's hearing the same things we are, which is um, folks who still care about this. And so, yeah. you know, requesting an investigation is uh, one thing. There are a lot of steps between yeah. that and anything actually coming of it. So it's right. early days yet, but yeah. You know, anytime a anytime a an elected kind of the top prosecutor in King County is yes. not said to be investigating something involving the former mayor and former police chief, that's certainly certainly notable, even if yeah. uh, even if we don't know what's gonna come of it. Yeah, and, and in terms of anybody falling on a sword politically here, at least, we've got Dan Satterberg, who's been in office for many years, who is not going to be running again after this year. So there, there's a piece of the timing there involved, too. And I just think about this, David, just looking at the case itself. I think, you know, some people can say, oh, it's just a bunch of deleted text. But I think this has an impact that can be pretty widespread, not just from a transparency angle for the city, but in terms of these different cases that have been going on. You have a lot of merchants up on Capitol Hill who are like, wait a minute. There's a public safety requirement we need from you, City of Seattle. It wasn't followed here. You know, what's the information behind that? What about these texts? What does that lead in terms of the uh, the dollars that might spring out of this with the legal cases, et cetera? I just think this is perhaps a bigger case than people might think it might be when it comes to these texts. J- just some general thoughts about this as we wrap up the idea. Yeah, I mean, this is a requirement that... Yeah. The a state people, requirement, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that these people keep these records. And, uh, you know, at the most extreme, it can be a felony to mm-hmm. uh, delete these records. Willfully, yes. Uh-huh. Willfully delete these records. That seems like a high bar to clear um, mm-hmm. at first blush to prove that this was will- willful. But, you know, you never know. So, I mean, um, the fact that it's a felony, I think, should be reflective of how seriously the state takes this issue and and for some of the reasons that we're talking about, which is, I mean, there's the public good of transparency, which of course, sure. journalist I support uh, and am very interested to see what's in these texts, but you know, more, more even beyond these texts, I just, it's concerning as a journalist when uh, records like this go missing, but in a more kind of specific sense, exactly what you were saying, which is there are specific legal liability questions around this period that, um, yeah. You know, and there's real money and in some cases, literal lives at stake. I mean, some yeah, people right. die in this, in, 
at shop. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm, it is it is a serious question. Um, I don't know how motivated Dan Saber, Satterberg is to put, you know, Jenny Turkin behind bars or whatever. Right, but right, it, right, the investigation, right. I, I think at the very least, could um, sort of set a precedent for uh, future cases, kind of make public officials think twice about mm-hmm. uh, how they retain records. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of instill the fear of God into some elected <laughs> officials who um, should be accountable to the public. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good points all. We'll see how that plays out here. So, all right, upcoming here, gas-powered leaf blowers. Yes, they are loud, but should they be banned in Seattle? We're going to try to talk above the noise next on Now Hear This. Well, gas-powered leaf blowers, they're loud. They're causing concerns over health and the environment, and the Seattle City Council is talking about banning them. The council passed a resolution last week out of committee stating its intent to phase out these tools for city departments and their contractors by the year 2025 and for the rest of us by the year 2027 or later, if necessary, was a caveat noted there in the legislation. Councilmember Alex Peterson, who sponsored this legislation, pointed out that several other cities, L.A., Washington, D.C., Multnomah County in Oregon, which includes Portland, have done this a while ago. Now it needs to happen in Seattle. Here's what he said last week. Colleagues, this issue was delayed for far too long by the pandemic. Our resolution is consistent with past policy statements, and it's needed to make progress to work out the details to finally rid our city of these deafening and dirty fossil fuel machines. David, I thought this was interesting to watch this issue unfold because the council started looking at this way back in 2014. At the time, there weren't as many electric blowers on the market. Then the pandemic hit. So here we are eight years later. Just some general thoughts to start. What do you make of this resolution? <laughs> well, I, I have to note that I am on the sixth floor of the Seattle Times building, and I, I fairly sure I hear a leaf blower down on the street. Uh, <laughs> so they are, you know, they're As loud. As we speak, I love it. Yeah, yeah. okay. They make... They make a lot of noise, so um, there's obviously that component that people care about. Uh, you know, they they are kind of dirty. They um, they're not the cleanest burning machines. Yeah, those two stroke engines, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, although, you know, how, what their uh, CO two output is compared to the traffic backed up on I five every day, I have to imagine it's fairly negligible. But right, you know, right. it is it is a thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's. Um, it seems like it's one of those issues, you know, you hear sometimes about uh, people asking like, well, why doesn't it, you know, if, if a politician ran on a platform of just banning, banning spam calls, they would get right, right. 90% of the vote. So it seems like it's kind of one of those issues where it's just, you know, it's, it, maybe it's not, it's not going to solve the homelessness problem. It's not going to address any existential mm-hmm. questions about our city, sure. but it is perhaps kind of low hanging fruit of something mm-hmm. that, um, seems to annoy a broad cross-section of people. Uh, right. And so, you know, you, I guess, I suppose this is, uh, you know, responding to the will of the people in some ways. Sure. Yeah, I've also seen some criticism, uh, as you might expect, that, you know, questions about, with everything else going on, why is the council focused on yeah. gas-powered yeah. leaf blowers? Yep, yep. Um, you know, I, I do think that elected officials are able to chalk, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time and they can yes. handle separate things. But if you are concerned about sort of a perspective or, you know, mm-hmm. symbolic kind of uh, how the public, a frustrated public might view yes. this, that is certainly a risk that it will be seen as 
a distraction at a time when they're yeah. major. Uh, right. No. And, and council right. member Peterson went, went to pains during the committee uh, meeting to say, we've got bigger priorities out there with, but we've got the bandwidth to, to deal with this. So, so we'll see. Yeah. But I thought it was an important part of this, David, the racial equity analysis, the city is going to go through to figure out this change. And here's where it gets interesting to me. So nationally, the numbers show nearly half of the workers in the landscaping industry identify as Latino or Hispanic. In 1998, the city of Los Angeles banned gas power blowers. So a little while ago here, a number of workers launched a hunger strike at that point saying, we're not getting as much done. You're taking away our tools, taking money out of our pockets. I just think it's an interesting intersection of political issues here when you talk about racial equity, when you talk about protecting the environment, when you talk about banning leaf blowers. Do you see some kind of uh, back and forth happening with that situation here in Seattle? We have a very large activist community here, too. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's a good point that um, the the folks, a lot of the folks who are using leaf blowers are going to be on a whole less white and probably less rich than the city of Seattle in general. And um, anyone who's ever used a leaf blower is undeniable. The gas ones are more powerful and more effective uh, to move leaves in a short period of time. So, uh, you know, um, I think that's an interesting point. I don't know that I want to take it too much further than that. I, I yeah. don't make any broad assumptions about this, but I do think that's an interesting point. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be part of the analysis. And then the other part too, and I think you just brought this up, this idea of the gas power blowers having more power than their electric counterparts, even with the uh, developments that have been made over the past several years. And what's it going to cost the city to actually make this transition? You've got batteries that potentially cost more long-term, of course. I think the cost would be less, but this is something that's going to cost the city a couple of bucks, too. Any final thoughts about this? No, except for that, uh, you know, <laughs> every now and then issues come up that I think at the outset, uh, maybe some folks in City Hall think will be kind of an easy win, and they rarely mm. they, they often end up actually taking a lot of um, energy and analysis, yeah. and there's always... There's always something that uh, maybe we didn't think about. And, um, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being one of those things that maybe stretches on a little bit longer than we were expecting it to. Um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, though. Also, I don't know. I mean, I haven't I haven't messed around with an electric powered leaf blower. I don't mm-hmm. how much quieter are they? I'm not I'm not they sure. Are, they're quieter. I have one they at are, home okay. and they're definitely quieter. And it's just that whole like, you know, the, the yeah. startup isn't there. Uh, that whirring sound that's always in the background when the engine's you know continuing to idle when you're not even using right. it that's not there right. doesn't rev up as much so uh, the sound is definitely less but I've noticed it and I, and the city actually did some studies on this it's like okay this works pretty well when it's dry out there but when it's a little wet and newsflash Seattle gets wet every now and then it doesn't work as well so um, I, I think there's some interesting pieces here and uh, We'll see what blows through here when it comes to these leaf blowers over the next couple of months. But I did want to get to a question, David, that one of our patrons, Sonia, was writing in and talked to us about looking at a story brought up in The Urbanist about not light rail, but regional rail that would take people longer distances. Now, the argument made in this piece in The Urbanist is we're making progress towards a foundation for regional rail with the sounder, but we need something larger and more frequent when it comes to the system. Case in point. You got Link Light Rail when it gets to Tacoma in the 2030s. It's estimated the trip from Tacoma to Seattle, a lot of people do make that commute, would take 74 minutes. Some thoughts about regional rail, David. How important is it? Is it on the radar of local and state transportation officials? And any thoughts on this one? And thank you, Sonia, for sending in this question. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, we do have the sounder, which is... Mm-hmm. The, the heavy rail uh, kind of goes between, um, you know, goes up to Edmonds and uh, down to Tacoma. Um, but it's 
pretty limited at this point. Yeah. You know, it's really just commuter hours. Um, you know, uh, at, at least as far as compared to other public transportation. I mean, all public transportation hasn't quite recovered to pre-pandemic levels, but the sound right. is really still pretty low. And I think that's because it's a commuter train. And um, I think a lot of the folks who use it are also happen to be the folks who can um, probably do their jobs remotely fairly easily. Um, so it is, it is in a little bit of a, a, a lull, I think right now, this whatever, what little amount of regional rail we do have, you know, I think it's an interesting point because if you, you know, you go to European cities and um, East coast cities in particular, oh, yeah. um, it, it is a, it is a major part of the transportation network. And it's really for, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. It's um, I think one of the criticisms from some big light rail proponents of the the map to build out light rail right mm-hmm. now is it you know it, it follows highways kind of when you're going yeah. north and going south and it in some ways it's sort of pretending to be that the the thing that yeah. in other cities is served by regional right rail right land, right rather than um you know you think of new york city the mta is is not really about moving commuters in and out it's getting through the city and sort of meant for short trips and yeah. whereas the rail is what moves people in from Connecticut and New Jersey and things like yep. that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the argument for regional light rail here is to, you know, it allows a regional um, rail here is it allows light rail to be light rail, which is yeah. that uh, stop focus kind of more urban. Mm-hmm. And then you could, you know, move commuters at a quicker, quicker distance with a heavy rail, yeah. um, y- you know, the, the, the cost and, and effort. I was going to gonna say, yeah, I, I think is, is fairly enormous. Um, I, I think the light rail build out in sound trans sound transit is sort of barely hanging on by their skin or their teeth as they it keep feels like delays it. and yeah. the, the cost keeps going up. So I, I don't know what kind of appetite there is to fund something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there is the conversation I should add about high speed rail. Mm, uh, right. That's also on the table uh-huh. up, up and down the core, you know, kind of a Cascadia, high speed rail yeah. that the legislature this last year promised, um, was it $200 million to continue? Right, 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 right. Some more look into that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was a hundred million. I can't remember um, to be then matched by the federal government. So, so in some ways that conversation seems to be moving forward a little more quickly than the kind of more regional, um, you know, expanding something like the sounder. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's an interesting point. I, I don't know that there's a ton of, mom- I haven't seen a ton of momentum around, um, building out the sounder system at this point right that's uh that's where it gets challenging and it's just it's one of those things where i thought this point was made really well in the urbanist too turning places that might seem transit unfriendly into transit friendly and just making making it more of an option but i I, i'm concerned about those costs too when we see 54 billion dollars for sound transit 3 and the expansion going on there and just with those dollars continuing to compound uh I'm not sure, but uh, this is great food for thought. I know we're going to keep looking at this. And, Sonia, I wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sending in this question. And, hey, patrons, if you have a question out there, throw it our way. We'll try to make sure that we get it answered on the air. And, David, I really appreciate you working with me on that. All right, well, we've got something else coming up, a double dose of transportation talk, if you will, here. But we're going to be talking a lot about what's going on with Highway 99. Can a neighborhood successfully push to remove a portion of State Highway 99 running through its backyard. David's got the story on Transportation Talk. 
David, you recently wrote a story about a neighborhood effort to remove a portion of Highway 99 in Seattle's South Park neighborhood. You touched on this story back in February. Now it looks like the idea might have some legs to it. What, what's going on here? Yeah, this is this is really interesting to me because, um, as you mentioned, you know, it's it's been percolating for a while. It's mm-hmm. been this pretty impressive, impressively organized effort in the neighborhood. Um, you know, it was kind of someone's someone's idea, a couple people's idea to remove this section. It's about I think it's a quarter mile, half mile of Highway 99 that goes right right through the middle of South Park. Um, and, you know, the idea was you take the land and you put it into a community trust and you can build affordable housing or grocery stores or whatever sure. it might be. Um, you know, it, it, what's interesting to me about this idea is in some ways, you know, it's this kind of big idea. And I think even the, the people who came up with it sort of acknowledged when they, that when they would tell people about it, they'd get eye rolls and chuckles mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah, that's that's nice, but it's totally unrealistic. But mm-hmm. the reason I wanted to kind of follow up on it is because it's now it has money behind it. The legislature... Their, their pitch was convincing enough to convince the legislature to give $600,000 to study how, how you could actually make this happen. And so, wow. um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to me for two reasons. A, because this is a conversation that seems to be boiling up uh, nationwide around yeah. um, highway expansion, limiting highway expansion, removing highways, mm-hmm. um, you know, their effect on particularly communities of color. Right. But it's also interesting to me just as sort of a more like movement focused story, which is how do you how does a kind of grassroots organic movement make that pivot into bureaucracy and and contracts and And the mainstream? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sort of becoming a real thing. And, um, you know, I I I like this story, not an endorsement of the project itself, but I like the story because uh, I feel like it's an interesting opportunity to watch something like that make that transition yeah. and kind of evolve over i mean it's if and that's an enormous if yeah this yeah. were to ever actually happen we're talking you know many many years in the future probably decades yeah. uh, right. this is going to be a very slow process but right. i do just think from like a kind of organizing m- movement advocacy perspective it's a really mm-hmm. interesting story because they've they've been pretty successful uh yeah. looking forward an idea that i think to a lot of people at first blush seems uh kind of out there and a little radical I was going to just delving into it for a second here to kind of wrap up the thought. Is the pushback going to come from freight companies here? Where do you see this this discussion going, I guess? Yeah, I mean, th- th- there are enormous reasons, I think, that people will come up with for not doing this. Uh, <laughs> the biggest one will be, um, yeah, freight movement. The Port of Seattle doesn't love the idea because, um, you know, about half their freight when it comes into the port goes south. Um, sure. And a lot of those trucks take Highway 99. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of them also take Highway 509 and maybe even bump out to I-5. But yeah, yeah. Um, I think the port is really squeamish about the idea of eliminating a corridor there, especially, you know, they, they make the argument that if there's an earthquake or something and one of these highways goes down, yep. you don't want, you want to have some redundancy in the yeah. system. So they're really nervous about the idea. And then, you know, I do think even within the neighborhood, there's questions about, well, if we do this, are we just going to move the problem that we don't like onto yeah white center or something. You know, yeah. 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 Right. A, right. A different community. And is mm-hmm. there, are they just going to have to deal with it? And so, hmm. you know, I, I think um, what we've seen is some discussion about, well, maybe there are some other alternatives to then to just fully decommissioning. Maybe we can right. do some mitigation, that sort of thing. But the seeds of this movement are, are not, you know, they were pretty explicit early on that they're not that interested in planting some trees or building a higher wall. They really want yeah. 
to decommission this and use this land for public good. And so, wow. um, yeah, it'll be, it, we'll, we'll see, like I said, it, you know, might not ever come to fruition while I'm uh, alive today, yeah. but who knows? Uh, yeah. Right. It, it, it'll, it'll be fun to watch just as far as like, you know, how far can, how far can a couple people in a town hall in South park take a fairly big idea. Right. I'm interested to see how that pans out too. Thanks for breaking that down. All right. I wanted to make sure we wrapped up with this, David. It's not that you, don't like backyard chickens here, but I saw you tweet about this, how ridiculous these birds really are when it comes to avoiding predators. What's what's the deal? Because I know you have some. Have you been taking care of chickens right now? No, I've, I've we've inherited three chickens and two ducks. Um, I see. That. Okay, there is, we go. Which is great because we get eggs, but uh, I've seen some raccoons around and I know we have coyotes in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. I am worried about them being eaten. In fact, I'm fairly certain that at some point they will get eaten. And so I would encourage them to be quiet and kind of not announce their presence, but that they don't seem to be aware of that. And then they, they hop out of their little pen. Sometimes they're pretty good escape artists and just walk around the yard and squawk. And mm. they're just putting a, putting a big kind of uh, bow tie on themselves for yeah. dinner, dinner for a raccoon. You know, <laughs> I think these, I think these birds are all like, I, I'm not sure I would describe them as like, natural chickens anymore i think they've all been bred for oh, domesticated purpose. a little bit yeah mm-hmm. they're all pretty i don't think that they're uh very self-aware beings <laughs> there's a reason the word bird brain is in our lexicon yeah. so it's uh it's and tweeting about birds a great life uh <laughs> imitating art moment of the day there for sure david thank you as always for joining me here thanks to everybody listening it's seattle news views and brews where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics this podcast is on all those platforms wherever you get your podcasts and once again If you are a listener, please support the show on Patreon. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for watching on Converge Media 2. We'll see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2022.